This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and even though I'm in Toronto, I am not watching the Raptors game. I'm here with my very best friend to talk about the new members of the 75 plus point club, Brian Com. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. Yes, Sunday night, Raptors game, Game of Thrones, but none of that happens. A live episode of Keeping Carlson happens. And for anyone who's not joined us live, uh, you can watch us on our YouTube channel. And if you're listening to this now, you can even go back and get a taste of next week's patron cast because we just talked for 12 minutes about just about nothing. But we have so much something to get to starting right now. Okay, yeah, if you want to go hear a bunch of random banter, go to keepingcarlson.com slash YouTube. But yes, Brian, like I said, this is a new tradition for Keeping Carlson. I think we started this last year or the year before. We did our 70-point club episode where we talk about who are the players who had never gotten 70 points before. And now for the first time, they did it this past season. And then we talked about, would they do it again? Like, was this sustainable? What does this mean for the future? Unfortunately, this year, like a whole ton of people, got 70 points is nothing now. Everyone gets 70 points because there's so much scoring in the NHL. So this week we're going to talk about the new members of the 75 point club to have a more reasonable list of players to go through before we get into that of course let's mention that we are presented by dauberhockey.com the top fantasy hockey website out there they just dropped their draft guide it is there it's full of rankings and charts and write-ups and all that good stuff cam robinson is all over that thing so if you like cam and if you like prospects and if you like hockey check out dauberhockey.com and go get that draft guide but okay brian let's get going Setting the table, like I said, we usually talked about the 70-point club. We're switching it to the 75-point club because there were 55 players who hit 70 points or more last season compared to only 36 the season before. So like I said, 70 points, that's nothing. Everyone does it now. So we decided to go higher. There are 37 players to hit 75 points this year. So clearly, 75 is the new 70. And I'm curious, Brian, have you adjusted the way you think of 70 points in your head? Like, I feel like for me, the number of points that a player paces for really tells me a lot about the player. Like, oh, that's a 60-point guy. Oh, that's a 70-point guy. That's an 80-point guy. Like, to me, that really means something in my head. I, I feel like we just have to do this mapping. Now. I'm curious if you've already done it, that what I used to think of as a 70-point guy, I need to start thinking about as a 75-point guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, so the question is, is scoring going up in the NHL, right? Are we just going to have more scoring and more points that the 75 is the new 70 just by virtue of more points being available? So I did some digging in preparation for the show to see why 
do we have all these guys suddenly crossing this threshold that was a lot harder to cross not so long ago? Uh, and the reason I found so, I'm just like, if you look at all the goals scored, uh, there were about 130 more goals scored in 2018-19 compared to the season prior. Uh, but there were uh, almost 200 more assists doled out as well. Uh, 300 more total points on the whole. Uh, some of that, like the goals are coming from a higher shooting percentage from the skaters. Uh, I know a, lot, a big theory is power play opportunities. That's not it. There were almost uh, 7,750 power play opportunities in 1718. There are about 140 fewer of those in 2018 19. So, I, like, it's a combination of, of better scoring, better shooting, or worse goaltending, something in that sphere. Plus, it seems as though on each goal, um, you know, maybe there's there's an extra assist getter sometimes than, than there has been in the past. I don't know. I'm very curious to see if this trend continues. It doesn't really matter for fantasy, I guess. But like it is interesting because when we want to talk about if a player is a 65, 70, 75, 80 point guy, we need to keep that scale in mind to make sure we're, we're classifying him in the right echelon to make sure we're we're denoting that player's accomplishment as being rare enough. Right. I don't yeah. want to say some guy's 70 point player if 75 players are getting 70 points. Well, yeah, or maybe you do. Depends on the player. Depends what point you're trying to make. I think the higher shooting percentage theory, the thing about more assists happening, to me, that seems random. I'd be very curious to hear if people have an explanation for why there are more assists on average per goal happening. The shooting percentage thing makes sense to me because wasn't there a whole thing where they changed the goalie equipment and some goalies were complaining with the new rules? So maybe it is like worse goaltending, but not necessarily because the goalies are worse, but just because their equipment is a little different. That would make sense to me. I recall that being a discussion point last summer. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the goalie equipment thing, that's always been a topic, but they actually did act on it. So maybe that's a, that's a thing. I also, by the way, just calculated quickly assist per goal. It was almost, uh, exactly equal between the last two seasons. So yeah, let's not, let's not bark up that tree. It was more goals scored and Elon good theory, because if there were fewer power play opportunities, we either have to assume that like, or sticks were suddenly constructed better, or there's another reason shooters are finding the net more often. Maybe it's just variance too. Yeah. Wait. So this whole thing you said before about more assists that was that was wrong. That was a red herring. Well, there were more assists, but if you take into account the more goals that oh, were come on. like proportionally, it all evens out. I should have done that math before. <laughs> okay. So should we start the show over? That was a ridiculous thing that you said. Like, well, there were more assists. Where did they come from? Okay. Well, I mean, it just it just dawned on me. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad we at least said that and didn't get angry emails. If there's anyone that's going to listen to this episode at the start of June, Do you know, there's still hockey going on, by the way, there was, a Stanley Cup. there was like a huge break where there was like a week. It felt like of no games, but the Bruins and, and the St. Louis Blues have been playing in the Stanley Cup finals. They actually had a game yesterday and even crazier, Jake Allen played. <laughs> How about that? Jordan Bennington got pulled and ended up being a seven 2 win for the Bruins. They're two games to one. This isn't really a news show. Just throwing it out there. But Brian, remember we had that conversation, I think it was last week or like last episode or the episode before about Jordan Bennington. Someone was asking like how elite of a fantasy goalie is this guy, especially in the keeper league. And I remember saying, you go check the tape. Like my only concern is that he's just, he was a nobody just a year ago. So it's hard to really depend on, okay, he's the for sure future of the blues. And you know, you saw yesterday, like now I'll bet you there's people wondering, oh, who should get the next start? Is it Bennington or Allen? I'm sure Bennington no. will get them. Okay, fine. So Bennington will get the next start. But if he struggles again, I can see the next game 
maybe it going to out. Like, I don't know. I'm just saying that it still just doesn't seem like he's had an amazing season. I'm probably going to sound dumb for saying this after he like gets a shutout in the next three games. But I feel like next season, watch if it's Binnington and Allen, once again, Binnington will start the season as a starter. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a stretch at some point where Binnington struggles for a bit and Allen gets a stretch of games. Binnington's a new goalie in the league. So sometimes I just feel like goalies like that go on cold stretches and then you start to question whether or not they're going to hold the spot, especially someone who didn't really have the pedigree like Jordan Bennington. And it, again, it was only okay. one game. I don't mean to read too much into one bad game. Yeah. And, and Jake Allen has had these little opportunities to prove himself before, right? We're going on uh, two, roughly three years where he cannot string enough games together to make a convincing case that he's a number one or even one A goalie in the league. He was once upon a time in his second full-time season, a 920 goalie. Uh, that's when St. Louis uh, had him and Brian Elliott. And neither guy has really proven themselves to be so effective outside of the particular context of those St. Louis teams. So I know you don't want to get too deep into it. You're not saying a whole lot, but I like, let's not, I don't even, okay, maybe we should go down that path. Cause I said the same thing about Curtis McElhaney and then look at what he did. What I was going to say, Brian is like what you're saying right now is the exact same thing you could say about Martin Jones, right? Like he's hasn't shown himself to be that great as a number one goalie, but Aaron Dell just really struggled. So Martin Jones kept on getting the starts. That's the kind of situation I could see happening in St. Louis next year. I'm not saying that Jake Allen's going to become this amazing goalie out of nowhere, but I'm saying he could be as good as Martin Jones was and potentially Jordan Binnington could end up being as good as Aaron Dell. We, Aaron Dell had an amazing stretch. He was playing Binnington-esque uh, a couple seasons ago and he was looking like, oh, maybe he should become the starter for San Jose. And look, look at him now. Like Even with Jones struggling, Dell couldn't get into a playoff game. But anyways, I, I don't want to get into it. I just want just to throw it out there, have a little bit of current hockey talk before we get into talking about the season. We're not really going to be talking much more playoffs aside from what I just brought up. Right? Is there anything else you want to say about the Bruins and the Blues before we move forward? No. Okay. With apologies to Bruins and Blues fans, you, you have the only teams that anyone is really talking about on a day-to-day basis. So you have your content. You don't need it from us. Yeah, well, maybe there'll be some Bruins or Blues players who are new entrants to the 75-point club, so we'll definitely be talking about them then. So let's get into it. So, Brian, first of all, let's set the table again. I think I already said set the table. I need a new saying. But uh, there's 14 players that we're going to be inducting into this club. So 14 players who had never hit 75 points before, and now they have in this past season. And like I said, we're going to just talk about each one of them and discuss if we think they'll be able to do it again. Like how did it happen? What changed all that good stuff? Uh, Brian, one fun thing is all these players, all 14 of them, not only had they never hit 75 points before, none of them have even hit 70 before. So this could have just been the 70 point episode and we just cut it short. Uh, So that's, I think a fun fact. There's no player that I brought up that ever even had more than 70 and they all hit 75. So what a great year for all these players. Uh, also, Brian, here a quick guess before we get started with the show proper. A lot of intro here, Brian. I just want to really tease people. Want to try to guess of these 14 players who hit 75 points for the first time, how many of them do you think we projected in our almanac last summer to get 75 or more points? Oh, man. Out of 14. Uh, well, I, I think in our projections, we were generally lower, like in in trying to figure out how many points would generally be scored. Uh, so keeping that in mind, I'm going to go with seven. Oh, my God. I wish. I wish, Brian. The answer Six? is three. Oh, no. <laughs> three of these 14 uh, players. Three, we- you can pre-order your almanac now <laughs> at keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. 
Yeah, so we've been doing over the last few episodes, right, a little almanac epilogue discussing what we got wrong and what we're learning from it. So this is still technically part of that, right? Like we're going to be trying to figure out what we got wrong with these projections. I'll let you know for each player as they come up what we projected. Uh, Brian, there are six of these 14 players we projected to get 70 or more. So that's pretty good. And then there's eight of them where we were like under 70 and then they hit 75 plus. But also there's a whole... Considering that a lot of them hadn't hit 70 before. So uh, like, I'll take that. Yeah, I mean, that's the hard thing about projecting fantasy. You have to figure out which players are going to do something that they had never done before. And we'll discuss why they did. So let's get started. Okay, what I'm thinking I'll do is, Brian, I'm just going to read you down the list of NHL scoring leaders, and we'll take a stop at each player who got to 75 plus for the first time. So we get uh, number one, Kucherov, McDavid, Patrick Kane, Dreisaitl, Sidney Crosby, Brad Marchand, Johnny Gaudreau, Nathan McKinnon, Steven Stankos, Alex Barkov. All those guys had hit 75 or more before. And then we get to the top scorer who had never even had 75 points before. Welcome to the 75-point club, Mitch Marner. What a season for Mitch Marner. 94 points in 82 games compared to 69 points in 82 games two seasons ago in 2017-18. So a huge jump. He barely missed out on the 70-point club two seasons ago. Last season, he gets there, and then he does like a victory lap, ends up with 94. The crazy thing is, I took a look. He had fewer power play points last season than the season before. So he did this all, I guess, at even strength for the most part how much credit brian are you going to give to it just being that marner got to play with Tavares this year versus marner just like maturing into this amazing player at the age of 21 he's currently an rfa matthews makes 11.5 million Tavares makes 11 million i like i'm curious like how much is marner worth like this guy's a superstar so for all ufa rfa all free agent talk Let's shout out right off the top uh, the contract projections that are being released over at Evolving Wild right now. And I'll mention them in our show notes if you haven't seen them yet. They are very informative. Last season, I don't know if anyone remembers, uh, we had Matt Kane, who is now a member of the New Jersey Devils analytics department. He had developed a model for predicting contracts and he released all of his projections and the accuracy was was pretty impressive. Uh, so this offseason, Evolving Wild has stepped up and released their model uh, Again, we'll post it in our show notes. And their model projects Marner's next contract at $9.8 million for 10 years, which, you know, actually seems pretty fair. So, and and trying to situate him amongst the other free agents, uh, Marner would be with that salary and contract ahead of Skinner, Point, and Matthew Kachuk, and behind Sebastian Ajo, Miko Rantanen, and Artemi Panarin. So that, that seems about the right place to slot him. Uh, Good luck to Toronto fitting Marner under their cap without getting themselves in real trouble. We all know and have seen this coming. They're going to have to have a fairly creative offseason to make this all work and keep the band together as best they can. I almost feel like if you're saying... If they're projecting that Marner's going to only make $9 million, then I guess they're clearly on the side of the Leafs somehow being able to convince Marner that the only reason he got all those points was because he was playing with Tavares, right? Because Tavares is making 11 and Marner had like just as many more points than him. So uh, are you taking that stance? Like, What's the reason for Marner's big jump? Because the one big change I see, aside from him being a year older, is that he played all season with John Tavares. Yeah, so I think, for the record, Marner is worth it at $9.8 million. Uh because he is deserving of a big share of the credit. Yes, of course we give credit to John Tavares. But first I want to look at what Marner did differently himself this season, which actually isn't a whole lot. Like he did not evolve into a brand new player this season. What he did is he 
was assigned. He was deployed uh, for a few more minutes of ice time per night. And with that, he shot and scored at more or less the same rate at five on five as he did in 1718. But the extra raw time on ice got him another four goals and about 40 more shots. And as you mentioned, Elon, we also saw actually a a decrease in power play production from Mitch Marner. He had five fewer power play goals, and that accounts for essentially the whole drop between this season and the one before it. Uh, And, you know, in 17-18, I'm not sure he deserved those five power play goals. So this is regression uh, that could have been expected and seems reasonable. Um, Like Marner's shooting percentage was cut by more than half on the power play, down from 16% in 17-18 to 7% in 18-19. But... Uh, more constant and reliable measures like expected goals and shot rates also dropped for Marner. So I think that's why I I think it's fair to say that him losing five power play goals year over year uh, was a fairly deserved drop for Mitch Marner. But again, he was a beast at five on five and still had very good power play numbers. Uh, And then you look at his line mates and this is where Tavares starts to come in Uh, in 2017, 18 Elon, Think to yourself, I don't know if any of our listeners want to play along too. Who did Mitch Marner play with the most before Tavares came along? Wasn't I remember there was a Kadri Marner Marlowe, was it line that was hot at one point? Yeah, so Kadri Marlowe Marner was a line. Uh, so was Bozak Marlowe Marner. Uh, so Marlowe Bozak Kadri is three most common line mates two seasons ago. James Van Riemsdyk was his fourth most common line mate. That worked well. Zach Hyman is fifth most common. Uh, so these. You know, no real game breakers here. James Van Riemsdyk comes pretty close, but he was the fourth most regular line mate of Marner. No, uh, no shade on Kadri. No He's pretty good. No, Kadri's great. Yeah, no. But if Marlowe and Bozak are your two most common line mates, that's, that's not ideal. It's certainly not what Marner got in 1819, which was John Tavares. And having Tavares on his line gave Marner someone to feed and cash in with for assists. Uh, Marner's primary assist rates tripled in 2018-19. Uh, so a finisher like Tavares helps. But of course, Marner gets credit for setting him up and creating offense. Uh, and I'm not sure why that tandem might change next year, so long as Marner is still a Toronto Maple Leaf. Uh, and that's why I think Marner is a legit 100-point candidate for next season. And I don't think Like the question is, okay, but what if he isn't a Toronto Maple Leaf? For now, we're going to assume he is. But even if he isn't, I don't think that 100-point projection drops off a whole lot because he's going to be an excellent top-line player somewhere. And I think he's probably good for 90 points wherever he lands, so long as it's not like Ottawa, where he's in a total offensive wasteland. Yeah, I feel like... Okay, so first of all, you're saying you think that Marner's going to stick in the 75-plus point club. That's and then pretty, some. And then some. If you're saying all the way up to 100, you're saying he's going to improve on the 94 points. So Brian is super high on Mitch Marner. Is he the first... Maybe I'm getting too far off the beaten path here. Like, Would he rank potentially as the first Leaf you draft, or is he, is he the third after Matthews and Tavares? And I think about Marner is he has winger eligibility, which is always valuable in fantasy. Yeah, I think I'd probably still go Matthews first, but then it would be really close between Tavares and Marner. Man, but like, how many points do you think Matthews is going to get? If you've got Marner at 100, what is Matthews getting? Like 120 to make it worthwhile to have that center only versus winger? I don't know. Okay, we'll discuss it more. In I, the I think I'm looking at Matthews more for the goal scoring, right? Assuming that goals are, are weighted 
positively in your league. If you're in a points league and goals are worth more than assists, uh, you can count on Matthews for getting close to 40 goals. So yeah, I I think that's the reason why I would do it. If it's points only, then it's probably more even. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, Alex in the chat pointing out Leafs are going to... I've been seeing news about this. Roto World like, has a lot of news about the Leafs. But they, have, they have news about everyone, of course. But uh, they, uh, Zaitsev and Marlow, the Leafs are trying to unload both of their, their contracts. That might help them have money to sign Mitch Marner. Uh, man, that Zaitsev contract. At the time, it looked like, oh, they needed defense. And that's a pretty good contract. Now, I'm, I'm sure they're very happy to get uh, out of his contract if they can. Yeah, and the Marlow contract looked awful the day it happened. So that's a, that's a big pain. Lucky for them, it only lasts one more year. But it's like one year more too many, considering the situation they're in. And also, fun fact, uh, do you know the Leafs are still paying Phil Kessel $1.2 million for three more seasons? Oh, wow. That's wild that they had to take on contract to ship Kessel. Like, he helped the Penguins a lot. Like, the Penguins should pay for him. They, They won two cups. Like, I feel like he was worth it, but I guess uh, that was a really good job by the Penguins GM. Uh, Okay, so let's move on. We're continuing down the list of scoring leaders, trying to find who else is a new member of the 75-plus point club after Mitch Marner. It's actually Jonathan Huberdeau, who's the next member. 92 points. Two points less than Marner, but still such an amazing season after he also only had 69 points in 2017-18. So Marner and Huberdeau, like two peas in a pod. We just talked about Huberdeau a lot in the last episode. We were talking about players that we projected incorrectly in our world's first ever NHL audio almanac last summer. Uh, So yeah, I don't know if we really have to get into him too much again. I believe if I recall what you said, uh, you didn't think he was going to hit 92 again, but you did think he was going to be at least a guy, I think you said like 80-85. So you think he's going to stay in the 75-plus point club, right? I did, but I didn't say he was going to be quite as successful in 1920 as he was in 1819. Like you said, Elon, uh, anyone listening, wondering what we really think about Huberto? All in the last episode, uh, but the Coles notes are that Huberto's a great player, uh, but getting to play with Barkov when Trocek got injured is what turned Huberto from a 70-ish point guy, someone who might not have otherwise crossed the 75-point threshold, into a 90-plus point player. So we're going to wait to see how Joel Quenville deploys him this upcoming season. Uh, If he stays on the second line, I don't know that he re-enters the 75-point club. I think he sits around the 70-point mark. But on Barkov's wing, he can get above 80. And of course, both of those assume that he holds his role on the top power play, which seems likely. Yeah, I mean, there is one awesome player too many on that Florida team. So someone does get bumped from the top power play. Last year, it was Trocek a bit at the end, but it seemed to be rotating in and out like Hoffman, uh, Trocek. But I think Huberdeau was generally always on the top power play, even though he was someone we were worried about early in the season when he wasn't there. But I don't want to get into that now. That's going to be all next season of keeping Carlson, I'm sure, talking about what's going on with the Florida top six and top power play. By the way, Brian, I forgot to ask you, do you want to try to guess? Mitch Marner, like I said, ended the season with 94 points. What do you think we projected him for? Or do you want me to just tell you? Uh, I think we would have said se- somewhere between 75 and 80. Yeah, so we both said 75. So he's one of our all count. It's not a hit because we were like 20 points off, but it is a hit. He is a player who made it to the 75 point club and we said he would. So uh, we'll take what we can get. Guys, our almanac that we do this summer with all these great lessons we've learned is going to be so, so good. We're going to get everything right. So you can actually pre-order that right now, keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. Uh, we really did get Huber Doe very, very wrong. Uh, we discussed this last episode. I got it more wrong than you. 
Uh, I had him at like 60 points. You had him around 65. So uh, yeah, he ended up with 92. So that was a miss for sure, as most of these people will be because they're new members of the 75-point club, which Brian is saying, those are the hardest guys to on like looking back to have predicted correctly because they're guys who had never done it before. And like I'm saying, these guys never even hit 70 before. Now they got 75 plus. Okay, so let's continue down the list. And actually the next player in NHL scoring is also a new member, and that's Braden Point, who, just like Huberdeau, ended the season with 92 points, a huge improvement over his 66 points in 2017-18. Was, Brian, is the main reason why Braden Point got so many points, was it because of this 21.5 shooting percentage? That's the one thing I'm looking at that might be a reason to think Braden Point can't do it again, because that is obviously a super high shooting percentage. He only took 191 shots last season, and he scored 41 goals on them, versus he had more shots the previous season, 217 shots, but he only had 32 goals. So, I think Braden Point is amazing. I had him on my championship winning Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League team, uh, but I'm trying to think of, is there any reason for us not to just think of him as a 90-plus point guy again for next season taking less than 200 shots is usually not a recipe for a whole lot of shooting success uh Braden point found it though with 41 goals on those shots uh you've got guys like pavelski and shifley also shot 20 percent with under 200 shots but outside of that uh you know there's about six guys who managed to shoot fewer than take fewer than 200 shots and uh and get 30 goals or more uh Braden Point, of course, up at 41 in sort of another stratosphere by scoring on one out of every five shots that he took. So can he do that again? Well, I divided his shot taking into five-on-five situations and power play situations, and I was kind of surprised to see Braden Point's five-on-five scoring was actually very consistent compared to last year. Uh, On the whole, by the way, I just want to put this out there right away. Some people, when they look at Braden Point, trying to figure out what should I do with him? Oh no, his minutes went down in 1819. That's because he was taken off the penalty kill unit, uh, which is why he had 14 fewer blocks this season than the one before it, or at least played a role. So keep that in mind uh, when you're looking at him next year. Uh, anyway, let's go back to your shooting percentage question. And like I said, Elon Braden Point had a near identical five on five shooting percentage this season as he did the one before it. Point also had similar goal totals, shot rates, expected goals, all of the things we would normally look at to see, well, can this guy do it again? Is he scoring at the right rate? Uh, and on top of his 19 very sustainable five on five goals, Braden Point added 10 primary assists to his totals this season because that's what happens when you get ample time to set up Kucherov instead of uh, being mostly on the ice with Andre Palat and Yanni Gord. Uh, so that's how Point was able to still, uh, even beyond those 41 goals, uh, pad his point totals a little more. On the power play is where his shooting percentage really ballooned, though. Braden Point took 51 shots on the power play. And Elon, do you know how many of them he scored on? Well, you said like 18 goals at even strength, so I'm guessing the answer is going to be like 20 uh, on the power play? Yeah, very observant of you. 20 power play goals on 51 shots. That's almost a 40% conversion rate, which is good enough to be the highest converting shooter in the league on the power play. Uh, Only Alex Barkov and Mikko Rantanen were even in the vicinity of Braden Point shooting percentage amongst players who've taken a roughly proportionate amount of shots. So uh, that's not a skill 
right? That's not a repeatable skill. That's not going to last. So I think the question is, if we regress those power play shooting totals, uh, will Braden Point improve enough on his own accord to wash out that variance and still put up 92 points again in 2019-20? Remember that Braden Point, young guy, 22 years old in 18-19. So now he's heading into his age 23 season. Uh, So I think that there is a decent chance that he can take enough of a step forward in his game, wash out uh, the extra power play goals that he's likely to lose because of regression and still come up with about 90 points next season. He's another guy who uh, whose future is kind of in doubt, right? He's a restricted free agent on a sort of cap space strap team. Uh, Evolving Wild has projected Braden Point's next contract to be five years at about $8.2 million a year, which is like exactly the amount of cap space Tampa has. So we'll see how things move around him in Tampa or elsewhere and adjust our projections accordingly once they do. But like Marner, Point is a legit top-line talent wherever he goes. So I'm really not overly concerned if you're in a keeper league trying to make moves over the summer. Don't worry that Braden Point is somehow going to end up somewhere else and not going to be able to do as much. He's a very skilled hockey player. I think he can get to 85, 90 points next year. The difference between him and Marner, though, is that... uh, I don't think he's a lock uh, or he's as likely to become a 100 point player just because he's another year older points challenge next year is really just going to be to hit 92 again in a sustainable way and then build on that in the, in the seasons that follow while he's still in his prime. Wow. Okay. So still, you think he's definitely going to stay in the 75 point club. You're saying he could even do 92 points again. He like, he's playing with Kucherov also. So it's like, he's such a skilled player. Plus he's playing with the guy who won the Art Ross trophy, gets so many points all the times, continued into the playoffs. So like, it's like one of the best spots you can be in. So if Braden Point stays playing with Kucherov, it's going to be hard for him not to get like 85, 90, maybe more points. Also, remember when we were learning about why we got the Marshan projection wrong and we were talking about how like his Marshan's shots were down like the previous year. So we thought maybe that was going to be his new shot totals. Like Braden Point did have 217 shots a couple seasons ago, then fell to 191 shots last year. Maybe he'll get more shots next year, right? Like maybe that will also help. Like maybe not only like, you know, he'll take more shots on the power play to maybe earn those goals. So I think it's possible that he'll just take more shots to help stave off that regression. So lots of ways, lots of outs for Braden Point to continue doing what he did. We projected him for 70 points in our almanac, which uh, isn't terrible. So we did expect that he was going to improve but we didn't think it was going to improve this much, clearly. No, we didn't. Yeah, so more shots would definitely be one way he can do it. Another way he can do it is just keep playing with Kucherov, right? Instead of Palat and Gord or anyone else, that's obviously the optimal place for him to be in the lineup. So that's one of the big things I'm looking to see where he shows up in the Tampa lineup, especially knowing that some pieces might be moving and shifting to accommodate his next contract. So... um Ideally, he plays with Kucherov again, and that's that's the big thing. For anybody, that's an automatic 10 or 15-point bump, right, compared to Palat and Gord. Not to, like, really assail Palat and Gord too much. They're okay. they're fine hockey players, but it's nice to play with Kucherov, but, not, but, but Braden Point was also not riding Kucherov's coattails. I don't want to paint that picture, too. He got what Kucherov has to offer and then put in more himself. Yeah, definitely. And also, I should point out, I think that we were really smart in the Almanac for Braden Point because we projected 70 points for him, assuming that he wasn't going to be playing on a line with Kucherov. Like, I recall going into the season, we were thinking about, like, Stamkos, Kucherov, JT Miller as the top line, and we were still projecting Braden Point to get 70 points on a second line with who, like, Palat and Tyler Johnson or Yanni Gord or whoever. So good for us. I'm going to give us a point there. Okay, uh, 
let's do one more player. And we got a really special, fun advertisement to share. Uh, so we're going down the list of leading scorers. We just did Braden Point. Next was Blake Wheeler. He had done it before. Ovechkin, Tavares, Panarin, Rantanen, Giroux. All guys have done it before. Shifley. Then we get to, with 83 points in 82 games, Sebastian Ajo. Wow, what a season for him. He also had 12 points in 15 playoff games, which was only a 66-point pace. So actually, uh, Ajo, maybe we should be worried about him. But I kid, I kid. Okay, so this followed up a 65-point sophomore season, which followed up a 49-point rookie season. So Ajo is like graph of points is like shooting in a very consistent direction. 49, 65, 83 Brian, like for sure, I feel like he's got to be locked hit at least 75 again next year, right? Like his, the way his projection is going is up and he's so young. My real question is more along the lines of whether you think 83 is where he'll peak or are we expecting him to keep climbing into like 95, like 100 plus points? Like how high do you think Sebastian Ajo is going to go? I think one thing in his favor, like one good thing is he's going to be playing with probably Svechnikov a bit next year. If not at even strength, at least I would imagine on the power play, Svechnikov will be better, likely take over the even strength and power play roles that guys like Furland and Justin Williams were holding down. So I feel like Ajo could end up with potentially like better line mates, better goal scorers, specifically Svechnikov. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just really excited about him for next season. Well, so that already did happen to some extent when Nino Niederreiter joined the Hurricanes with about 30 games left in the season. We'll get to that impact in a little bit. Uh, But Elon, do you know that Ajo had 24 power play points, right? And I know what you're saying, like the personnel could improve, but are you saying he could be one of those like 30 to 35 power play point guys to really take him to the next level? Uh, I don't know. I'm just saying that he had an amazing season. He's like 21 years old. And I feel like the players around him are only getting better. So that's just my reason for thinking he could probably be better than even an 83 point guy. You you could fill in the blanks about the power play. That's what you, that's your job, Brian. You're the nerd okay. here who's going to look into that stuff. Well, it definitely can't hurt if his line mates improve on the power play. They already did at even strength and they could still improve depending on how Svechnikov stacks up to whatever the third option would be uh, for Aho and Nita Ryder. Uh, but Aho did manage 24 power play, sorry, 21 power play assists last season. So, so that's a lot. There were goals being scored on the power play while he was on the ice and he was a big factor in helping create them. Um, and I think the bright side of seeing him succeed with sometimes suboptimal line mates is that this is all proof that Aho is going to do big things regardless of who he plays with and regardless of what variance does for him. Looking at Aho's numbers from this past season, honestly, it's kind of amazing that he got to 83 points. Usually guys who have 83 points in a season have one really high number somewhere amongst their five-on-five or power play percentages. Maybe it's their shooting percentage. Maybe it's their IBP. Maybe it's their on-ice shooting percentage. And some players have these numbers really high in a sustainable way, uh, some of them in an unsustainable way. But Ajo, uh, neither way. He had no very high numbers amongst the percentages we usually see that would usually have one high number to help a player get so many points. Elon, remember how Braden Point took 51 power play shots and scored on 20 of them? Mm-hmm. So Sebastian nope. Ajo, he took 50 power play shots. How many do you think he scored on? I guess a lot fewer, two. 
close three he scored on three of his 50 power play shots even though he took uh, the same amount essentially as Braden Point 17 fewer goals than Braden Point on the power play uh Aho shot six percent on the power play and honestly his expected goals threat level was really not that far off of Braden Points to justify that huge chasm between their shooting success and then you look at Aho at five on five he shot only nine percent which like is okay, but I think he's probably a better player than that. He, he seems to have a better shot than that. And his teammates, Aho's teammates shot worse than that. Um, so it's like, how did Aho even get to 83 points when nothing was, like everything was average NHL or worse from a shooting perspective? Well, first, uh, he did take plenty of shots. Uh, he had 243 shots on goal. So even, uh, you know, that helps any player who's not scoring on a large proportion of their goals. But Sebastian Ajo also scored four times on 12 short-handed shots. Uh, so he had a 33% shooting percentage while short-handed playing on the penalty kill. He also scored five times on empty nets. Uh, by the way, 100% shooting percentage on empty nets. Not like those chumps we mentioned uh, on our last episode. And honestly, uh, the the shorthanded and empty net scoring situations are what helped both Ajo's rote goal totals and his shooting percentages get up to where they ended. Like you look at Ajo's shooting percentage, you're like, oh yeah, 12%. That's about where he should be. It's like, no, he had to have these nine goals on 17 shots in weird situations to get there. Had he not converted in those two situations, we'd be having a very different talk about Sebastian Ajo right now. I'd be pointing out his difficulties at converting at five on five and on the power play, wondering aloud whether his line mates are partially to blame and saying that Ajo probably deserved a good deal more than the 17 goals he scored. Uh, But thankfully he got that extra help to get up to 30. And like I said, Elon also uh, towards the end of the year, Nita Ryder really helped Ajo uh, get all the way up to a point per game. Uh, Ajo only played 30 games with Nino uh, on his line, but Nita Ryder was the teammate on whose goals Ajo picked up the most five-on-five assists. He assisted on seven Nita Ryder goals compared to just four assists on each of Tara Vinen's and Michael Furland's goals. And he was playing with those guys for large parts of an entire season. So where does this leave us for next season for Sebastian Ajo? Well, I'm certainly bought into Ajo as a 30-goal scorer. Uh, It would be great if he did it in common situations rather than on the PK and with an empty net in front of him. Uh, I think he's capable of that. Um, And then I have the question of, well, is he a Brad Marchand type? Like Brad Marchand, we talked about how he's like the sustainably good shorthanded scorer. And this is the first season that we saw Sebastian Ajo taking on any kind of shorthanded role. So I, I'm curious to find out if Ajo can repeat uh, these four power or these four shorthanded goals or anything like it next season. Uh, in any case, no matter how he puts it together on five on five or on the power play or shorthanded or on empty net. I fully expect Aho to score 30 goals, be a point per game player again next season. And I see potential for 92 with, uh, and that's 90 comma T O O. I'm not getting that specific, uh, but I see that potential with Niederreiter by Aho's side full time. And, uh, and hopefully, yeah, his even strength line mate, his third piece is also really strong in that power play. Maybe he does become a 30 power play point guy. It seems like there's still more upside to be found for Sebastian Aho than the 83 points he got this year.
Wow. Okay. Thank you for the in-depth look. So it sounds like he had bad luck in some places and then really good luck potentially in other places with those shorthanded goals and the empty net goals. We'll find out if those shorthanded goals are sustainable. I'm with you. I feel like it, the trend looks like he's going to keep going up at least 83 points. Definitely with all those shots, so valuable in fantasy. I believe he's triple eligibility on Yahoo, if I recall correctly, center left wing yeah. and right wing. So this guy's just super valuable. Like he should be drafted in the first couple rounds, I would think. Like Sky's the limit for Sebastian Ajo. He's really good. Uh, the next player is someone, Brian, that you and I were debating who was going to be better next season. So we'll get to him in just a second. I'm saying between Ajo and this guy. But first, if you recall, a couple episodes ago, we made a call out. We said we don't have any advertisements right now lined up for the summer. So if anyone wants to advertise anything for any amount of money, let us know. And why not? And so we got an email from Stephen Warbeck, who asked us to advertise the Kinsmen, the Kinsmen and Kinnett Clubs. Brian, have you heard of the Kinsmen and Kinnett Clubs? I have not heard of the Kinsmen and Kinnett Clubs. Okay, well, I'll tell you about them and I'll tell everyone about them. These sound like very nice clubs. <laughs> they are a profit service organizations spread all across Canada. They are full of dedicated members who are always coming up with fun ways to raise money, which then goes directly back into the community. Uh, building and maintaining parks, sponsoring local art and sports, giving scholarships to local students, assisting families in need. What? what? That's so nice. What a wholesome thing. The Kinsmen and Connect Clubs. Beautiful. Uh, we... All want our communities to flourish and be great places to live. So if you want, you if you believe in that, if you want your community to flourish and be a great place to live, maybe go out and join or support any of your local service clubs, kinsmen, or another. We all have a common goal to improve our communities and the lives of those around us. So how nice is that? Thank you, Stephen, for giving us something to advertise on the show. And yeah, if you're interested, listener, uh, check out the Kinsmen and Connect Clubs in your neighborhoods. If you're in Canada, uh, kincanada.ca will tell you where uh, your local club is. And uh, it's a really, it seems like a really great initiative. Give back to your community, get involved, get out there. And it looks like you get to wear a snazzy red shirt too. Wow. Okay. And offer code keep it. No, I'm just kidding. There's no offer code. <laughs> just go. Okay. Uh, so the player who, Brian, you and I had a debate about with Aho versus this guy, it was Jack. Eichel, so that's the next guy I want to talk about. So, okay, but first, okay, going down the list of scores, where were we here? Aho, then was Burns, then was Eichel. So right there, 82 points for Eichel. I recall, Brian, that was our big controversial bet over the summer. You said Aho was going to get a better point pace. I said, you're crazy. Eichel's going to be better than Aho. But you were taking a swing on Aho, and you, like, really sounded really smart because you totally called that Aho was going to be amazing, and you nailed it. I was right. Eichel did have a slightly better point pace than Sebastian Ajo, but still very good job, Brian, on making that call. But okay, let's talk about Jack Eichel, who people might be surprised. Wait, he's joining the 75-plus point club? He's been a superstar forever. The thing is, like, last year when we were talking about Jack Eichel, I called him the biggest lock to join the 70-point club this year because he's already paced for 77 and 78 points in his previous two seasons, but injuries kept him from hitting 70 for real. And this season, he finally was able to get the games in. He played all but five games, and he put up 82 points in 77 games for an 87 point pace. Uh, there were a couple other players who I said were going to be locks to join the 70 point club this season. I went back and listened to that episode. It was a patron cast, actually. I said Eichel was for sure going to get there. I said Austin Matthews was for sure going to get there, which I was right. He made it to a 70 plus point pace. 
I also said Philip Forsberg was going to be a lock to get there, and he didn't. <laughs> that was a that was a big whiff. He only pays for 64 points last season. So Philip Forsberg, you let us down. We talked about him actually during the summer series a little bit already. Brian, you said you think he's going to really bounce back and be a nice value pick in your draft. So think about that when you're looking at Philip Forsberg. Well, we're talking about Jack Eichel here. Okay, so like I said, just barely beat out Aho, winning me our bet if we would have the better point pace. But my question to you is, Brian, do you want to go double or nothing? on Eichel versus Aho for next season. This time around, your picking Aho won't be as hot of a take. They pretty much paced for around the same number of points this past season. I think I still like Eichel better, but I'm curious to know what you think about him and his point projection versus Sebastian Aho. What am I doubling if I win this double or nothing? Well, you lost. So I'm the one who's doubling and you could get back to nothing. That's how it works. Oh, so what what do I stand to lose here? So I I stand to win nothing, it sounds like. No, I get I have all the bragging rights. You know, if I even made that bet just slightly less ridiculous, you still would have taken it. What do you mean less ridiculous? Well, you I mean point per game was a bigger leap than I think I had to take. I mean you we just said Eichel versus Aho. That was it. You're saying that you should have done a spread or something? Yeah. Well, okay. Well, either way, I get all the bragging rights because I got it right. Excuse me, don't take away my... If you want to take back my bragging rights, you'll have to go double or nothing. The odds were against me. So is this is it just for the bragging rights? I get double the bragging rights or I'll get no bragging rights. <laughs> oh, man. what do? You, I, well, I'd love to find out what that looks like. That, so, yes, <laughs> I am ta- I'm taking you up on that. I think that, uh, that Aho is going to outpoint and outpace Jack Eichel in 2019-2020. Wow. Eichel is someone who, like, when I look at his numbers... Uh, they're great. I like them, uh, but I don't really need to look at them for very long. Look, he's a strong player. He has sustainable scoring numbers. Nothing really stands out that would indicate regression one way or the other for Eichel next season. The one thing that could have the greatest effect on Eichel's numbers next year, uh, unfortunately for Eichel, is entirely out of his control. And that's what the Sabres decide to do about Jeff Skinner. Eichel had 54 assists last season. 21 of those were on Jeff Skinner's goals. Now, this isn't to say that Eichel would be screwed if Skinner doesn't resign for whatever reason. Uh, like, Eichel could be as responsible. This is like Marner and Tavares, right? Eichel could be as responsible for creating those goals, those 21 goals, as Skinner was for finishing them. Um, for Pete's sake, the teammate who received the next most assistance from Eichel was Jason Pominville eight times. So if Eichel can help Pominville even eight times, he can probably help just about anyone uh, that ends up on his line. Uh, Eichel also helped Sam Reinhardt eight times, which maybe is a little preview of the future if Skinner doesn't stay in Buffalo. But at this point, you have to think they get a deal done, right? Skinner's uh, evolving wild contract projection is eight years at eight and a half million dollars, which would comfortably fit within Buffalo's $29 million of cap space. Uh, so, Again, you think that there's probably a way to get this done. It wouldn't be catastrophic for for Eichel if Skinner left, but I would be a lot happier to know that Eichel doesn't have to start fresh with someone else who may or may not work out as well. So for now, I'm going to assume Skinner stays and that Eichel stays just above a point-per-game player and just the slightest touch below Sebastian Ajo. Hmm, Brian, what about... Uh, okay, assuming everything stays the same, do we also need to give some credit to the fact that Rasmus Dahlin 
like he improved throughout the season. He was getting a lot of points, uh, you know, after a, a stretch when he finally got onto that top power play and stayed there. Maybe Dalene gets better. That helps Eichel get a little bit better. Like, I just feel like Buffalo, it's so frustrating, right? Because they have Eichel and Dalene, these two amazing centerpieces. And yeah, they better get it done with Skinner. Or if not, get a similar winger for him. Like, I guess they could sign like a Anders Lee. Is that like a similar signing to Jeff Skinner? Zuccarello? I don't know. Like, they need to get someone really good to be on that top line. Because that would be ridiculous if you have Eichel and Dalene and you end up just being bad year after year. It's like almost inexcusable. It's almost like having McDavid and Dreisaitl. Yeah, you you don't want to lose. It's not that Jeff Skinner is even slam dunk fantastic. Like he's a pretty good player. He's already twenty seven though. So you know if you're you're going to have to give him term, I assume if you want to get him on your team, and you're probably locking him up into his mid thirties. Um, you look at other UFA options. I don't know Matt Duchesne, but he's a center. Uh, like the RFAs, there's a lot of them. You're right though that Anders Lee is maybe the best comparable or what about Jordan Everly? <laughs> is that yeah. the, I know, I know that's ridiculous. No, Everly's good. You love Everly. I'm looking, I, I can't I do, wait. but I, I don't know that he has the same ceiling as Skinner at this point. Joe Pavelski. He's pretty good. Yeah. Also, well, he can play on the wing. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Okay. So that's our Eichel conversation. You say he's going to be about the same and hopefully he at least has Skinner. I'm saying maybe he could even be a little better because I'm really excited about Rasmus Dalin. People say he's like the next Eric Carlson. Usually people playing with Eric Carlson get a lot of points themselves. So uh, we'll wait and see. But yeah, it's probably going to be close again between Eichel and Ajo. And last year, I thought it was a crazy thing when you predicted that, but you were a brilliant genius and you got it right. This year, I think that you're saying it again, and now you just sound like everyone else. So good for you. You, But you were ahead of the curve. Uh, so let's continue down. No, they're all sounding like me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Everyone's going to try to be as good projectors as us. By the way, we talk about all these like mistakes we made, we projected players wrong. Uh, first of all, Jack Eichel, we projected for 85 point pace and he pretty much hit that. Uh, Aho, we projected for 75. So we were off. We weren't off by so, so much. So we were good with those guys. And yeah, we were still like right in the pack for projectors overall. We're just the ones telling you guys about our mistakes. So that's why, you know, we're sounding dumb, but we, we, we were, we're okay. All right. So after Eichel came Phil Kessel and he'd already done it before, but then Sean Monahan with 82 points in 78 games became the next inductee in the 75 plus point club he had 82 points in 78 games his previous career best was in the previous season 2017-18 where he put up 64 points in 74 games for a 71 point pace so he had paced above 70 but he had never actually hit it and now he gets all the way up to 82 points brian do you think that sean monahan has it in him again to be an 80 plus point player i imagine everything should pretty much stay the same he's going to center the top line with johnny gaudreau he's going to be on the top power play uh, I don't know, like I assume Elias Lindholm will still be there and we'll actually be getting to him soon. Spoiler alert. Uh, so what do you think about Sean Monaghan? Is what he did this season something that was like a once in a lifetime thing and he's going to go back to being boring Sean Monaghan around 65 points a year? Or are we looking at a new beast moving forward? I'm actually going to cover all the flames in one fell swoop. Elon. Okay, so- if it, let me then tell them. Oh, let me talk okay. about all of them then. All right, do you want? because there's actually a few flames that join the 75 plus point club so elias lindholm is the next over i'm skipping down in the list but we'll, we'll get to them later when i get to the actual list of nhl leading scorers so elias lindholm we've talked about him so much on the podcast uh we've said this a bunch of times already like he had an amazing first three quarters of the season then put up a turd of a final quarter which included the fantasy playoffs for most people in head-to-head leagues like they were really disappointed with him left a bad taste in people's mouths also didn't have a great actual nhl playoffs but still lindholm ends up with 78 points in 81 games crushing his previous career high of 45 with the canes so uh you could bring him up then the other flame 
if you're the listener, you can want to try to guess. And obviously, it isn't Johnny Gujo. He had done it before. Uh, so hopefully, it's pretty obvious. Uh, Matthew Kachuk, he joined the 75-plus point club, just like Sebastian Ajo. It was his third season, and third time was the charm for Kachuk to join the 75-plus point club. Uh, after a couple around 50 point seasons to start his his career, though to be fair, he actually paced for 59 points a couple seasons ago and missed time with injury. But yeah, uh, Kachuk played 80 games last season and put up 77 points. And yeah, Brian, I guess uh, do you think that Kachuk, Monahan, and Lindholm all had a special dinner together at the end of the season to celebrate all hitting the 75 point milestone in the same year? That must be a very special moment for the three of them. If yes, do you think they invited Johnny Gaudreau? since like, he's probably a big reason why they got there. So tell me, what are your thoughts on how this dinner went? Who do you think was there? Also, Giordano didn't get to 75, but he did get to 70 plus. So if we were doing 70 point club, we'd have four flames on the list. Uh, so yeah, tell me about what you think this dinner was like to celebrate the end of the season. I guess it probably wasn't that great because they did get eliminated, upset in the first round of the playoffs. So they probably weren't too happy. Yeah, hopefully the dinner happened just before the playoffs or like three weeks later when they all had some time to cool off. But I sure hope Johnny Goodrow was invited. Not to take anything away from Monaghan, Lindholm, and Matthew Kachuk, but as Johnny Goodrow goes, so do they. And Johnny sure was going last season. He returned to a shooting percentage in the mid-teens, and that's where Goodrow had been in his first two years in the league before taking a two-year-long dip that ended in 1819, Goudreau returned back to a 14% all-situation shooting percentage, and that helped him to career-high 36 goals, which helped Monaghan and Lindholm to career-high assist totals, uh, also helping Monaghan and Lindholm, though, themselves, of course, as the two of those guys also set career highs in goals. Monaghan bested his previous goals high watermark by three, and Lindholm had 27 goals compared to his previous career high of 17. That's a whole 10 goal improvement over his previous career high. And like you said, Elon, you had 34 goals from Kachuk, 17 from Mark Giordano, and you got a Flames team that had plenty of points to go around because they finished second in total goals for last season behind only Tampa, tied with San Jose. And by and large, Calgary's scoring looked pretty sustainable. I mean, if I want to nitpick, Monaghan may have had a couple more power play goals than he normally would have. Elias Lindholm still remains kind of a question mark, right? Like he shot five, six, seven percent at even strength in his last three years in Carolina. Then he's a 12% shooter in Calgary, but with an identical five on five expected goals per 60, uh, which tells me that uh, his shots didn't appear to be any more dangerous, but almost twice as many went in. So that's something that makes me go, hmm. And if there were one flame, I'd think twice about drafting next year, it would be Elias Lindholm. But everyone else is probably already thinking twice about him because of his abysmal end to the season. Elon, has he even come up in our patron rankings yet? Elias Lindholm? Yeah. No, not even close. Like, I'm... I think like someone like Alex Dabrinkit hasn't even been brought up yet. And I feel like he should be. So I think we're a ways away from Elias Lindholm being mentioned because yeah, such a risky pick. We're at the point now. So this painted rankings, something Dave Benton has set up, who's the ultimate cupful champion, by the way. So we have to always give Dave his kudos. Uh, so every day we vote on another player to get in our cupful patron rankings uh we're on number 38 right now actually just today patrick line got in a 26 player drop but line gets on the list maybe a risky pick even up 38 but obviously big upside but yeah lindholm hasn't been mentioned monahan actually hasn't even been placed yet though he does have some votes so monahan's probably in the hopper to come up in the next two or three days yeah so monahan would be the guy i want after goodrow 
And then honestly, between like after that, I don't know if I'm looking at skaters, right? Because Giordano's somewhere in this mix too. But Matthew Kachuk, I remember the moment early this season when I had to admit, like I honestly, I thought Kachuk was like a 60, 65 point guy. He was scoring at this 75, 80 point clip. And I just, for the first couple of weeks, I was like, ah, you know, it's going to cool off. And then there was this moment where I like, no, I, I actually, I've got to backtrack here. I think I judged too early and Kachuk looked like he had a sustainable scoring pattern. And it turned out that he did uh, for the last, you know, 60 games of the season. And once we finally revised that impression that we had of him, or at least that I had of him, uh, such an impressive season for Matthew Kachuk. He's one of very few skaters landing in the top 50 in five on five points scored that did not spend substantial time on a top line. Like, Matthew Kachuk barely spent any time or or any time at all on a top line. I think he got up there a couple times as Elias Lindholm was being shuffled off uh, during those cold spells towards the end of the season. But the fact that Matthew Kachuk was a top 55 on five scorer in the league without that deployment is like a real accomplishment and achievement for him that he deserves a lot of credit for. And at this point, I fully expect Matthew Kachuk to match last year's production. And I fully expect him to potentially be a draft day steal as a result, as people look at Calgary's depth chart, it's like, oh yeah, I don't want a second line player. I'm not going to pick him as one of my first 93 skaters, one of my first 93 forwards. And then Kachuk will maybe just be sitting there for you to take uh, later on in your draft. So keep him high on your draft list. And then you've got to find the right time where, you know, he's still hidden enough that you can still snipe him, but, but not too late that somebody else knows better too. Right. Okay. So uh, unpacking all of that, do you have Kachuk or Lindholm as someone you would prefer more? I feel like Kachuk seems like the more stable guy to pick because he's been on the second line and top power play and doing just fine while Lindholm really benefited from playing on the top line. But even if he stays there, he was struggling near the end of the season. So I feel like his spot is a lot more volatile. If it was me, I'm taking Matthew Kachuk. Like, I don't like, generally for my draft philosophy, I don't want to take a high upside player with also high downside with like an early pick. Like when we're talking about players who we think are going to get like 70 plus points, I'd rather play safe, take the guys I know, even if I'm going to lose, let's say five points on the season by going with a safer choice, I'd rather take the person that's not going to turn out to be a bust. And obviously some players are impossible to predict. Like I would have drafted Patrick Laine last year and I would have been burned just like all the people who were. But yeah, Elias Lindholm, I definitely could see him hitting 70, 75 again if he plays all year in the same deployment. But I could also see him getting bumped at some point and like really falling. And the end of the last season, like I said, left a bad taste in my mouth. So yeah, I would take a chuck. Do you agree? Yeah, I think I would take Kachuk too. You're right. Like there might, there's a sort of floor ceiling question here where, you know, you're taking Kachuk as uh, someone that feels a little more reliable still at this point that even on the second line, he put up such amazing production last season. So you figure he can probably do at least that again next year. Whereas Lindholm, like I said, still, still a question mark, still someone who I scratch my head about a little bit. And I, I'm actually very curious to know because, because owners have, a reason to be shy to draft either of those guys. So I'm really uh, curious to know who drops further than the other between Kachuk and Lindholm and also how far they both drop because, you know, if they're both available and people are like, oh, you know, I'll take the guy that's still out there when my turn comes around. 
it'll be really interesting to see in this year's drafts. If it's me, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing Kachuk as a little more of a certainty. So I will go him and sacrifice a bit of ceiling uh, than that the that I'd be getting if I had drafted Lindholm. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's not completely outside the realm of possibility that Matthew Kachuk gets on the top line. That would just be insane for his fantasy value, but it's probably not like like it hasn't happened yet, aside from like one game here or there. Okay, so we got to Sean Monahan with 82 points. That was good for 25th in the league, by the way, for anyone keeping track. Next was David Pasternak, uh, Jonathan Taves, Tyler Sagan. All those guys have done it before, hit 75 at least. Next, Patrice Bergeron. Believe it or not, I, I probably was close to skipping by him, assuming he'd hit at least 75 before. But actually, no, Patrice Bergeron, 79 points in 65 games this season, was his first ever time hitting that 75-point mark. He did come close in his second year in the league in 2005-2006. Bergeron's been around a long time, guys. Uh, he had 73 points in 81 games. Uh, he followed that up with a 70-point season, 70 points in 77 games. So maybe he could have gotten to 75 if he played the whole season. Then he just dealt with injuries for a lot then he had a few seasons where he even though he was playing 80 and 81 games he had 57 64 points then like two seasons ago he was pacing at an amazing pace he had 63 points in 64 games so was playing at like an 82 point pace but the injuries this season he also dealt with injuries like i said he only played 65 games but he still was able to put up 79 points so that just goes to show how amazing of a season patrice bergeron had if anything like the question isn't if we think he's good enough to hit 75 point pace again i feel like the real question is whether like should we predict if he's going to be able to play around 70 games i feel like if he plays around 70 games he'll probably get to 75 points but if but it's going to be hard because he keeps getting injured every season so i don't know brian probably you'll say that maybe his pace this season which was his highest ever maybe was a bit like unsustainable i think we've talked about him even before since the bruins have been going all the way through the playoffs oh yeah there's the bruins talk for all the bruins fans expecting that we were going to talk about them a lot so yeah patrice bergeron by the way not having the best playoffs like going into yesterday's game he only had 13 points in 20 playoff games so points wise obviously he's having a pretty good playoffs because his team keeps winning but points wise he wasn't doing that good of course yesterday he had three points in the big romp over the blues so that obviously helps his overall totals and i'll bet you he's got some hidden lingering injury or something that's maybe holding him back a little bit like that's usually what happens with guys like especially with a guy like Patrice Bergeron anyway yeah Bergeron hits the 75 point club i feel like he should be a lock to do it again next season if he plays around 70 games but that's a big if because he has a lot of trouble doing that year in and year out yeah and he's another year older right he's going to be heading into his age 34 season and it's pretty amazing that patrice bertrand is like hitting his stride again like for the second time he's bookending his career with the most offensively productive hockey of his life uh both as an eight, as a 20 year old and now 13 years later as a 33 year old. And so how's he doing it? Well, I, I don't know if you remember, this is a while ago, but the year he set that career high 73 points, it was his sophomore season and he took 310 shots on goal. And that remains uh, the highest shots on goal total in a season to date for him. I believe if we paced out his shots on goal for the last couple seasons, he still wouldn't have surpassed that, even if you account for the time that he's been missing due to injury. So he was firing at the net like no other season at the start of his career and shooting about 9 or 10%. And that's about where he's been for about the entirety of his career until... All of a sudden, age 32 season, shooting percentage jump, jumps up to 13%. This year, it jumps up to 15.5%. 
but I don't know if that is sustainable or if it's just like a two year long blip and then he's bound to go back down to 10%. I'm looking at his expected goals numbers, both on the power play and at five on five. And I'm not seeing anything that really stands out over and above production from past seasons. Uh, You look at his expected goal rates at five on five and yeah, they're higher than they were in sort of like the Valley of his, of his career in terms of, of offense, but uh, they're not over and like, they're not crazy uh, impressive in the way that makes me think, oh yeah, this is all bound to stick. Um, of course, another factor in Patrice Bergeron suddenly becoming an off- a big offensive producer again is the emergence. And it's crazy. We talked about this last week, the emergence of Brad Marchand, who is now a- an offensive threat, which he never was up until like, three seasons ago now. So Bergeron has that weapon now. Um, They're working together. They're doing great things at even strength. They have one of the most dangerous lines in hockey. Then you throw Pasternak into the mix. Then you throw seven shorthanded points for Bergeron last season into the mix. Five empty net goals. Uh, These are both things that, you know, he usually has a couple empty net goals and a few shorthanded points, but those helped bump up his pace uh, all the way up to 100 instead of being like in the 90, uh, 95 area. Uh, as for what to expect next season from Patrice Bergeron, Elon, I don't know. Like you, if I have you right, you're saying that you expect him to continue, right? Like if he played all 82 games, do you think he can repeat uh, like an a, even a 95 point pace? Well, I was saying that I need him to play 70 to get back in the 75 point club. So I think that would put him at around like a 90 ish point pace. So that's probably where I'm going to put him like 90 to 95 pace, but I don't think he's going to play all 82 games. So you definitely have to take that into account. But the way I see it, I almost feel like you're a little bit overthinking it. Like with him in terms of like all these percentages and stuff, just because we, you've already said last episode that you thought Marshan is going to get a hundred points again. I feel like Pasternak is like more of a lock than Marshan to get a hundred points. So I don't know, like, how can you play on the top line and top power play with these 200 point players and not get like around 90 yourself? Like, I just don't see how how that would click. So, right. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm not sure about a 100 point pace from Bergeron, uh, especially because he's not taking like this season. He had 20 fewer shots in the same amount of games that he played two seasons ago in 1718. So that wasn't like something that was overly assuring. I think he's taken less shots as Marchand and Pasternak have emerged. Um, So that's why I'm a little bearish on him getting all the way up to 100 points, but you're right. It would be overthinking it to think that uh, if he plays with those guys and that power play still keeps clicking the way it did this season, uh, that Bergeron should end up with anything less than 90 points. Like it still sounds like a lot for Patrice Bergeron. I know when you said like you were going through to see where he fit, uh, like, like surely he's gotten 75 points before and oh my gosh, he hasn't. Um, But it's also, so on one hand, it's weird to think he hasn't gotten to 75 before. On the other hand, Bergeron and 90, 95 points just together do not roll off the tongue so easily. Well, don't forget, 75 is the new 70. So that means that 90 is like the new 85. Mm. And it's like a play per game. Like, he's really good. And he's playing with, like, these two players that are so amazing. He's amazing. 
I'm worried about the injuries. That's the reason why he's going to potentially fall in your draft list. And if you're in a head-to-head league, we've given this advice before, you don't have to worry so, so much about injuries. Like Obviously, there's the big risk that he gets in, that he gets injured when you need him most in your fantasy playoffs, like Malkin always tends to do. And Chris Letang often does that too. But, you know, if he misses time in like November and then again in like February, and then like you lose a couple of weeks or you have to like make do without him for a couple of weeks, like, you know, it's worth it to have him for the weeks that count and for like the majority of matchups in your season. So I wouldn't be too worried about him. And I, I guess he probably won't fall too far in drafts, even with the injury risk, just because of all the exposure he's getting now in the playoffs and just this amazing point pace. But he's definitely a guy I'd be happy to get, you know, in the second, like third round, like latest, but probably he'll go like in our patron rankings. He's got to be uh, taking. Yeah, he went 27th because also in a league that counts shots, like a couple, yeah, he's not getting like 310 shots. Like you said, he, he got in like a second season, but he's still a really big shooter. So in a league that gives you points just for shots on goal, regardless of if they go in or not. Uh, yeah. Bergeron's like a really valuable guy in fantasy. So uh, good for him joining the 75 point club, another milestone, another accomplishment for Patrice. Uh, so as we keep going down the list after Bergeron comes, Elias Lindholm, we already talked about, then we've got Ryan O'Reilly, who is our next inductee into the 75-plus point club. Another person still playing currently in the Stanley Cup Finals. So there's our St. Louis Blues content for the week. So O'Reilly ended the season with 75 points in 82 games. Clearly, he's enjoying his life. Like, what a lucky guy, right? He was in Buffalo, losing all the time, never even got into the 70-point club. Now he comes to St. Louis. He gets to the 75-plus point club for the first time ever with 77 points, makes to the Stanley Cup Finals. Wow, what a year for Ryan O'Reilly. I asked you last episode if you take Ryan O'Reilly over Tarasenko, and you went with Tarasenko, even though O'Reilly had more points last season, though we were like saying, oh, I bet but Tarasenko has winger eligibility, and there's like some other reasons in fantasy why you'd prefer him. But like, was any of your reason for preferring Tarasenko over Ryan O'Reilly because you think that Ryan O'Reilly will be a one-and-done in the 75-point club? Or do you like his chances to stick around in this range of point pace on the Blues, at least till he hits his 30s, let's say? He's currently 28. O'Reilly was hard to assess because in 1718, he got buffaloed, right? He played for the Sabres. Uh, he was all over the place with who he was playing with. Uh, for example, uh, his most common line mates were Sam Reinhardt and Kyle Lacposo, but he never played with them at the same time. So he was either with Reinhardt and a random or a Kposo and a random. And the randoms were most often Benoit Pouliot. Uh, Vander Kane was in there for a bit. Scott Wilson, Zemkis Gergensen, Jason Pominville, Jordan Nolan, Johan Larson. Like these are all names of players who you don't want to be spending a whole lot of time with. And I don't know also what was up with Buffalo last season in 17-18, right? Because they had um, uh, O'Reilly say that he didn't want to play hockey anymore at one point. And then at the start of 1819, Patrick Berglund, who had just gotten there was like, actually I'm out. Like I'm skipping out on this guaranteed contract that I just signed uh, and like taking care of myself. So I don't know what was happening in Buffalo. I hope everybody in the situation has turned out. Okay. I know Ryan O'Reilly's hockey situation sure has. Uh, and a lot of the difference was simply uh, St. Louis is a better place to play. Than Buffalo. I already outlined one reason. It was the line mates. Another reason was that Ryan O'Reilly, uh, when I say he got buffaloed for a few years now, uh, Buffalo and Carolina, any player who went to either of those teams suffered from these low shooting percentages. Ryan O'Reilly shot just 5% in 2017-18. Uh, he was able to shoot 
11% at five on five in 2018, 19. And not just that, he took more shots than he ever had in his career. He attempted more shots than he ever had in his career. There were a lot of things that Ryan O'Reilly like just seemed to not even be like close to doing in Buffalo, uh, in Colorado in the first few years of his career. Yeah, he was sort of on the doorstep to the St. Louis season, but then sort of had that that dip in Buffalo where he he just couldn't quite uh, get it together as a Sabre. The Sabres just couldn't quite get him together. In any case, his season in St. Louis was a big success, and it was really because of his even strength production. He had almost identical points on the power play compared to his Buffalo time, but at even strength, he had double as many as many five on five points in eighteen nineteen as he did in seventeen eighteen, and still a good deal more than he had in sixteen seventeen with Buffalo. Also, like I said, shooting more often, a career high two hundred and thirty four shots on goal, scored twenty eight times on them because he had a healthy shooting percentage to go with it, uh, and that's the reason why Ryan O'Reilly had such a good year this year. Now he's 28 years old. Uh, that was, this was his age 27 season. So we, we go by February 1st. He's a February 7th birthday. So he's going to be his age 28 season coming up, which makes me feel like he can repeat what he did. Uh, is he like a lock to break 75 points? I'm not going to say an absolute lock, but I am going to like, he's someone who's going to flirt with 75 points, right? The right amount of variance could either push him just a little bit over or keep him just a little bit below. Um, But I think he's a pretty good bet to fall somewhere within like 72 to 77 points. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Like, he's not a lock for 75, but I think he's a really safe bet. Kind of like a Matthew Kachuk, but maybe even a safer bet just because you know he's going to get the really good deployment. Uh, yeah, like, I feel like Ryan O'Reilly, you draft him as a 75-ish point guy, you're going to get a 75-ish point guy. And Brian, like, I still don't get this trade. Like, why did Buffalo trade him? They got Sabatka, Patrick Berglund, Tage Thompson, and a pick. And it wasn't like... O'Reilly was a pending unrestricted free agent or anything like he was locked in for like a decent contract seven and a half million a year like I just what a what a weird trade like who's Buffalo's second line center I guess Casey Middle I guess they thought oh we have Casey Middlestat we don't need Ryan O'Reilly anymore but like O'Reilly could have played the wing like they could have figured something out like that seems like a really dumb trade I'm pretty sure there were some off-ice factors involved the same way that there were when he left Colorado although I think think those centered around his dad and I'm not sure in Buffalo it was the same oh, thing. So I like I don't know that Buffalo was really happy to make this deal. I feel like they they had to and uh, they had no leverage. So yeah, they didn't get a great return. We'll see what kind of player Tage Thompson turns out to be, but it seems like I mean, obviously a really great price to pay for the St. Louis Blues seeing as Ryan O'Reilly is one of the key pieces that has brought them this close to a Stanley Cup. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, if I'm ever hired, okay, I'm putting my pitch out there right now. If any team wants to hire me as their GM, my number one rule would be I'm not trading players because of off ice issues. Like if a player tells me like, oh, I don't want to play here. You should trade me. I'll be like, F you. You're under contract. If you want to go and sabotage yourself, go ahead. If you try to sa- like, what is he? Gonna- he's a professional. He's not going to sabotage the team. He's going to go out there. He's going to put up a 70 plus point pace. So uh, I don't, I don't believe that. Like the Sens trading Mike Hoffman for nothing. Like just 
these trades, like, I don't believe in them. Like, I, I guess, like, some people really believe in, like, locker room chemistry and whatever. But I feel like these are, like, grown adults that are professionals getting paid millions of dollars. It's just hard for me to imagine that they're going to be so affected by, like, someone being, like, unhappy. And, like, or maybe it was unhappy for another reason. I don't know. I'm, like, talking as if I know something when I don't know anything. But I was like, these trades, these, like, stupid trades. And then they're like, oh, it's because of off-ice issues. I just feel like, come on. Give me a break. So I think a lot of GMs have tried that tack and it didn't like, I don't know that it works. Like if a player wants to go, a player wants to go. And I think it, it might impact the team as a whole or impact at least <laughs> that player's ability. But Elon, like you're just not going like deep enough to the root. I think I thought you were going to say, if you were GM of a hockey team, your first like goal would be keep players happy. Just like, don't even get to the point where they can well, be disgruntled. I mean, obviously that's the goal, but you know. Sometimes... I think if you treat everyone right and like take care of people, they're not right. going to walk out on you. Like, by the way, how many I can tell... like we know Detroit love you know the Illich family uh, like worshipped in Detroit, and I think that's because of the way they treated their players and what players ever tried to force their way out of being a Red Wing. Yeah, but I don't care. Like, I would say like, fine. So O'Reilly noted you want to be traded play really well and we'll hopefully get an offer for you that's worth it like i'm not saying not to trade him but don't like trade him for nothing just because like it's not as if they had to make this trade because who do they get for him which of these players even was significant on the sabers the answer is none of them maybe tage thompson will one day anyway whatever let's continue down our list of 70 plus 75 plus point players bit of a tongue twister i've been doing it right all episode long but it is getting a little late for us uh so where were we uh monahan okay kessel I already said him, Pasternak, Taze. Oh, uh, we already... Okay, Patrice Bergeron, Ryan O'Reilly. Okay, there we are. Next was Matthew Kachuk with 77 points. We already talked about him. Sean Couturier next. He actually hit the 75-plus point club two seasons ago. So look at Sean Couturier, two seasons in a row, 75-plus points. Next, Alex Debrinkit lands in the 75-plus point club for his first time. Welcome to the club, Alex Debrinkit. He had 76 points in 82 games. He's the first sophomore on our list. So he's, uh, of all the players that were in the NHL for only their second season, he was the highest scorer with those 76 points. He put up 52 points in 81 games as a rookie in 2017-18, then he crushed that last season. 41 goals, 76 points in 82 games. Brian, I'm just going to tell you, I love Alex Dabrinkit. I want to get him. Why? I, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, oh. well I, like Clearly, I wasn't just ending my sentence there. <laughs> I love him. Because I feel like for I want to get him in all my drafts next year. Like I just feel like I know that his stock is high, but I feel like it's not high enough almost. Like I feel like still like he hasn't even been nominated yet for the patron rankings. Like we Patrick Line it just got put up, like I said, on 38, and there's a bunch of players who have at least one vote. And Debrinkett's not even on the list. Like he doesn't have a vote yet. And like guys who've been put up are guys like uh Larkin, Giroux, Gabriel Landeskog, Mark Stone. Like I feel like to me. I don't know, you'll tell me if I'm wrong. Like, Dabrinkit deserves to be on that list. This guy's been scoring so many goals. Like, in his junior career, he had, like, 65 goals in 63 games his last season with Erie. He was, like, one of these guys who was getting like, crazy points all through the minors. Then, two years later, as a 21-year-old, so this is last season, 41 goals. And this is, like, his second year in the pros. He, like, I feel like Chicago hopefully will get better. Like, you know, like, hopefully he'll play with Dylan Strome longer and Dylan Strome will continue to gain... Of chemistry with him or I, I don't know what's going to happen but he's like now a fixture on the top power play like I feel like Dabrinkit's probably 
I like, I don't know. I like him. I feel like he's going to keep going up or at the very least stay the same, which was very, very valuable last season in fantasy. So let me know. Am, am I too high on him? I just feel like this guy has a lot of potential. I could see him getting like 85 points next season, like 45 goals. A ton of potential. Can I share one theory about why you like him so much? Okay, go for it. Well, his name is Debrinket, and you were a big fan of Felix the Cat Potvin, weren't uh-huh. you? I also was a big fan as a kid of Theron Fleury, who was a smaller in stature player, just like Alex Debrinket. So maybe I do have a type. But I just feel like Debrinket's one of those guys who I've, it's like the Braden point. Like he had a really good second season, and I still feel like he'll fall in drafts just far enough that you could still get him for great value like one last time before like in two seasons when when we're talking next summer it's going to be like obviously you draft to bring it in like the first couple of rounds well this year you might still be able to get him like the fourth fifth round something like that yeah i think this is probably the last season that you can sort of get him a little later than you should i like it's it's a little early to know if there are red flags about him right because we're still establishing a baseline for what we should expect from him uh, year in, year out. And one thing that does raise my eyebrows just a little is his power play goal scoring. Uh, He scored 13 power play goals uh, on just 52 shots. So he's somewhere between uh, Braden Point and Sebastian Ajo in power play scoring, but closer to Braden Point, closer to being a little unsustainable. Now, the question with Braden Point was, can his... uh, growth you know and, and development as a hockey player wash out any regression well for Alex Dabrinkit it's going to be easier because there's there's less regression uh, on his plate that we should be worried about uh, one other thing to love about Alex Dabrinkit is just how many shots he fires on net uh, top 50 in shot rates and shot attempt rates which like isn't awesome except for the fact that he's 21 years old in his second NHL season. Uh, He got a big boost in responsibility this season, uh, almost three minutes a night more uh, on average than in his rookie season. So that bodes well for him. That was under a new coach too, Jeremy Calderton, who seems to have a lot of faith in Dabrinkit to make him one of his most oft played forwards. And like you said, Elon, there is enough in Chicago right now for Alex Dabrinkit to play with, right? You know, he's going to get, Patrick Kane uh, or like Dylan Strome maybe is someone good to play with also. Or Jonathan Taves. Or Jonathan Taves. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I'd prefer Patrick Kane and a Dylan Strome ceiling is as high as it seems. And I might even prefer Strome to Taves, but he's going to get some mix of that. Like he's not going to be left all alone. Um, So I, I agree with your optimism for next year. I wonder if he can't, like, I just don't know how high the ceiling is. I, I know I want to go up to 85, 90 points as something you can achieve, maybe even 95, 100 at some point. I just don't know how soon he's going to get there. I want to see another year from him. He's been an amazing shooter, by the way, uh, over 17% uh, over uh, about 400 shots in his two-year career. So I'd like to see him uh, play another year. Let's see if he still shoots that successfully and then i'll be ready to really confidently project him for now i'm gonna give him 75 80 points and feel really bad about it like that that's something i could definitely even just saying it see myself changing by the time we release our almanac to make higher yeah well obviously we're gonna do a lot more research when we do the second annual second ever nhl audio almanac which you could pre-order keeping carlson.com slash almanac we might raise the price at some point by the way so I, I, with no no advance notice required so uh, you can get in now lock in lock in that great price a, a special deal by the way for the patrons 10 percent off 
So if you first sign up as a patron for any amount, you sign up for a dollar as a patron. Look at this deal I'm throwing out here. Sign up as a dollar for a patron, keepinggirls.com slash patron. Then you get your link to get 10% off the almanac and then you're golden and you'll hear us talk and me gush over Alex Debrinkit for a, a little longer in the Chicago chapter of the NHL Audio Almanac. Uh, yeah, I like Chicago is going to be a fun team next year to project. Like, I think it's going to be tough because Eric Gustafsson had such an amazing season and he's going to be a really fun guy to project because there's a guy, Adam Boakvist, who might make the team supposed to be a really good defenseman. So that, that's going to be a tough team to come up with projections for with a lot of young players that we haven't seen a lot from, just like you said. But to bring it also, like, just his junior career was so, so impressive. So, like, I know you want to see more data on the NHL level, of course, but the fact that he was able to score all those goals in junior and then followed up and become a 40-goal scorer as a 21-year-old in the NHL just to me just says that he's got a lot to go. Speaking of defensemen and Eric Gustafsson, I wonder if a future episode idea is we try and establish what the 75 point mark is for defensemen and see who entered that club for the first time. Yeah, maybe we'll do like, yeah, we'll find some club where there was like around 35 or maybe it'll be fewer, right? Like 25 defensemen who broke that threshold. Maybe that could be the next episode. Who knows? So tweet at us at Keeping Carlson. Let us know. Uh, so we've got two more players, Brian, that I want to induct into the 75 plus point club. So going down our list here, we were at Alex Debrinkit. Next came, oh, Jake Gensel. So no, three players more. But Jake Gensel will be a quick conversation because we had a long chat about him in the last episode. We were talking about players that we got our projections wrong for. Uh, so yeah, Gensel, great season. Ends it with 76 points in 82 games when his previous high was, yeah, a lot lower, especially because, like, he had a really great rookie season. Then he followed that up with a lot of hype, and then he ended up not doing as well as people expected. He was in, like, the 55, 60-point range. Uh, then, last year, he was amazing, played all season with Crosby. And I think when we talked about him, your answer to whether or not he could repeat it was a resounding maybe. So uh, that's probably still where you are right now. We'll see how the offseason goes for Pittsburgh with like Phil Kessel. Uh, that would, I think, be really great news for Gensel if Kessel gets traded. There's a power play one spot that opens up for Jake Gensel. So I feel like, yeah, he's probably going to stick in that spot. Yeah, I think, again, go back and listen to what we said about Gensel for the whole thing. But Cole's notes, Elon, it wasn't a resounding maybe about whether Gensel can get 75. It was a probably 75. And, uh, how and we mentioned how he finished the season playing on the top power play unit uh, so that felt like it boded well for him to be able to continue doing that in 1920 which would help him at least get to 75 points and hopefully over 80 Okay, so Brian, we have two more players who had over 75, 75 or more points this season, and both of them are new members of the 75-plus point club. First up, Tavo Teravainen. So we've got another Carolina Hurricane. We already talked about Ajo so long ago with his 90-plus points, but Teravainen did squeak in there with 76 points in 82 games, beating out his 64 points in 82 games a couple seasons ago. My big question for Tavo is that he was split up with Aho at the end of the season. Remember, there was that Aho Niederreiter-Williams line. That was all the rage during the fantasy playoffs. That's what I was thinking when I started doing my write-up here about Tavo Teravainen. But then I took a look, and actually, Teravainen ended the season with 21 points in his final 20 games. So clearly, being away from Aho didn't affect him all that much at all. So maybe Teravainen is kind of like a Matthew Kachuk, where he's just so good that he could put up points no matter who he plays with on the first or the second line. So yeah, do you think that he's just good enough to be a 75 plus point guy and we don't even have to try to predict who his line mates will be? Or do you think that he's someone where you'd be nervous if he's not playing with Aho? 
You have to be a little nervous if he's not going to play with Sebastian Ajo. And I think in our almanac, when we talk about Teravine, and we'll get a little bit more into the with and without you situation and see uh, how the on-ice numbers as a whole, like uh, shot attempt share and wrote shot attempts, uh, expected goals for Tara Vinans, uh, both with and away from Sebastian Ajo. But like at a glance, it looks like uh, Tara Vinan did need Sebastian Ajo by a fair amount. Uh, he assisted on no one's goals more than he did uh, on Sebastian Ajo's. 16 goals uh, of Ajo's were created by Tavo Tara Vinan. Uh, so like there was a, a pretty important relationship working between the two of them. Uh, after Ajo, Teravainen assisted most on Dougie Hamilton's goals seven times and Michael Furland's goals seven times. And then Justin Falk's goals five times. So a uh, lot of involvement with the defenseman. That's the thing with Teravainen, right? He's not a big shooter. Uh, he, he barely registers two shots on goal per game. And he really, uh, his bread and butter is picking up assists one item that was his bread and butter last season, and this is what we mentioned about Aho, uh, they picked up a lot of shorthanded points together. So my uh, wondering aloud about whether Aho can, can can repeat that is going to be the same thing for Tevo Teravainen because uh, this was a new penalty kill role he had, and he put up five shorthanded points. The only other season in which he's had any kind of uh, penalty kill role, which is pretty similar to this last one, he just had one shorthanded point. So that was uh, th- that's a few extra points for him right there. He also might have punched a little bit above his weight in goal scoring on the power play. This is a guy who's traditionally scored on 10% of his power play shots. He scored on twice as many this year, setting a career high eight power play goals. So you knock off some of those uh, if he does regress there. And that plus shorthanded points for me definitely takes him below 75 points, especially if he doesn't play with Ajo, like it's really great that he succeeded towards the end of the season without Sebastian Ajo, but that's not a situation I would be really excited to play out. And again, in our almanac, I'll probably take a look at what the on-ice shooting percentage was during the stretch that he was away from Sebastian Ajo and how often, like he picked up 18 assists in those 21 games, five of them were on the power play. So of the 13 even strength ones, I would love to know uh, how often shots were going in. And if that was uh, really just a nice, stretch of on-ice shooting percentage uh, by his teammates. So these these are still question marks about Teravainen. The good news for anybody still hoping that he can crack 75 points again is that he is going to be uh, just 24 this season. So he's still young. He's still taking steps forward. He's inching towards his prime. So you hope some natural growth can help take him uh, over the 75-point mark. But as we get, you know, like we're, we're going in order from the top guys to the bottom guys, we're really finding our way to to these guys who really are just one piece of variance away from overshooting it or coming short. If I had to bet on Tara Vinen, man, it's almost like a push. Like I would take the over on 74 and a half for oh. him. I'm going to stay optimistic. I'm going to feel like Carolina, everyone in Carolina, Tara Vinen, Nita Ryder, Aho, Hamilton, everyone's going to take a step forward, Svechnikov, and that's going to be to, to the whole team's benefit. Hmm. I might take the under. I don't know. Maybe closer to 70. Maybe the, he'll be a guy we disagree on in the Almanac. Like, you were so convincing to me with how he had too high of a shooting percentage on the power play and all these shorthanded points. So I don't know. You, yeah. We, so we on, on the everyone. one hand, like to summarize it all, like, yeah, it feels like it all cancels itself out. I, I guess I was trying to say over because I sounded bearish on O'Reilly 
and I wanted to try and be optimistic about Teravine. And that's a trap I think I fell into on our last almanac. So I should be careful because I'm saying, yeah, these five shorthanded points, maybe not sustainable uh, power play goals. Maybe you should have only had four or five instead of eight. And a year of development maybe is a not enough to wash those out, but the, all those other guys getting better around him helps. It's really, it's really, really close. 74 yeah. points. Okay. And plus, don't forget, Caroline is going to still have to mix things up. By the time we record the Almanac, they're going to look a little different. Like Furland and Williams, I believe, are not coming back next year. Maybe Williams will resign. Uh, so if there's some open spots, potentially in the top six, maybe Carolina makes a splash on free agency. Though, I guess, mainly they need to worry about goaltending first before they try to find some top six players to sign. Uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting. And we'll definitely circle back when we get to the Carolina chapter of the Almanac. But Brian, okay, we're down to our last player who cracked the 75-point club for his first time ever with Exactly, 75 points, Gabriel Landeskog. But, you know, that's selling him short because he got 75 points in only 73 games. So he actually crushed his previous career high pace because he had 65 points in 2013-14. He paced for like 80 plus points this past season, like 85 points. Landeskog also had 62 points in 78 games a couple seasons ago, back when Ranton McKinnon first like, took their huge steps forward. So, yeah, I feel like Landeskog, he's going to be a tough guy to predict for next year. Like like with Tara Vinen, I have a few concerns about line mates. Like, I, I have a bit of a concern with Landeskog about if he's going to stick with McKinnon and Ranton next season for as long as he did this past season. Like, he was getting switched off a couple times near the end of the season and in the playoffs for short stretches. And with Landeskog, I'm actually, like, a little less certain that he's going to be able to repeat away from those two guys. Like I feel like being on the second line in Colorado is like a very big difference from being on the top line. So I feel like Landeskog's success is going to be super tied to whether or not he could stick on the top line with McKinnon and Ranton. And if he stays with them, McKinnon and Ranton just seem like they're just getting better and better. So I feel like it would be really hard for Landeskog not to crack the 75 plus point pace club again, considering he pays for like 85 next season. But yeah, he's a tough one. We were actually having a debate in the couple rankings last week about whether Landeskog is really a point per game player or if like the approximately 65 point Landeskog that he was before what is like closer to reality. I'm curious to know like where you land here. Is he at least getting back to 75 next season or do you think he's going to fall back to be the 65-ish guy he was before? One way he got to 75 was by scoring a career-high 34 goals and also a career-high 41 assists. But let's focus on the goals for a minute because uh, 34 goals, you need to be a shooter to get 34 goals. And Landeskog took 243 shots uh, this season, which was the second highest total of his career. And that's like straight up total, not accounting for games missed. If you look at 82 game pace, this was Landeskog's highest shots on goal pace of his career. Uh, part of that is be, like, this, this weren't the highest shot rates of his career, but he is playing three more minutes a night than he was at the start of his career. When he came in with these really high shot rates, that got us all excited, all hot and bothered about how often Gabriel Landeskog was throwing pucks on net his first three years in the league, huge numbers for shots and shot attempts. And then he was totally cut off uh, four years of shooting not very much. And the last two were particularly dire. Uh, he had about six and a half shots per 60 minutes this year, nine shots per 60 minutes. And that's a big jump. That's the highest shot rate he's put up at five on five since his sophomore season. So way to go, Gabriel Landeskog. And he did that all while putting up a very respectable uh, shooting percentage. It didn't look too high. Uh, it didn't look too low for sure. So 34 goals on what would pace out to be about 275 shots 
for the entire season is kind of promising for Gabriel Landeskog. Another thing that's really promising this from this season is that uh, his power play numbers uh, really came through last season. Uh, he was on this top unit a whole lot, right? Uh, super powerful top unit with McKinnon and Rantanen, but his IPP was garbage. He had a 40% IPP, which means he just was not getting in on the action this year. That changed. He got back up to a more normal 60% IPP, and that helped him improve his power play point totals from 17 and 17, 18 to 26 points in 18, 19, uh, and that's uh, that's essentially it for Gabriel Landeskog. So he was able to get involved more on the power play. He's able to shoot more at even strength. And the cherry on top, by the way, about that even strength shooting is that uh, his shots were registering as more dangerous, according to expected goals, than they have since his rookie season. Like his last few years, he was really lost. Like it looked like he was not shooting a lot and his shots weren't coming from dangerous places or dangerous contexts. And this year he solved both of those problems at once. So we saw, it's like we saw the first two years of Gabriel Landeskog in the NHL. And then we just saw the third year, if things were supposed to go the way, like we hoped they would. Uh, But he spent like five years wandering in the desert. Now he's finally arrived at the promised land to pick up where he left off after his sophomore season. Uh, I'm hopeful that he can get 75 points again. I know Elon, this line thing is difficult to get around and I guess we'll see what Colorado does in the offseason but Colorado it still feels like they don't have much of a choice if they're wanting to spread out their offense it's got to be Landis Gog, McKinnon and Rantanen right and if one person does get moved off it's probably Landis Gog. but then I feel like he doesn't necessarily anchor a line and the third piece on the top line might also not do a whole lot so I don't know if they really get a whole lot of bang for that buck. Some of this depends on how big a step forward Tyson Jost takes and how well he can, if he can potentially center a second line. Um, That's something I want to see next year. Yeah, I just feel like Colorado might try again. Since we saw them doing it, they might try again to move Landeskog off that top line to shake things up. And that I think would be catastrophic. If you're a Landeskog owner, you would be scrambling because that like he'd still be on the top power play. He wouldn't be droppable, yeah. but he wouldn't necessarily be a point for game player. So he's a bit of a risky pick, but huge upside as we saw. Plus, if you're in a bangers league, you got all those hits that he throws, which are very nice as well. He would essentially have to pull a Matthew Kachuk, right? If that's what happened, if he got shuffled off to the second line. And to pull a Matthew Kachuk, uh, he would need better line mates than, like, who would he be with at this point? Like, Carl Soderberg and Matt Nieto? Yeah, I mean, it's not happening. If Landeskog is not playing on the top line all season, I see him as, like, a 60-point player. (laughs) But if he's on the top line, I see him, like, you know, whatever. Like, you could take away at least half of his even strength points, probably more. Uh, Anyway, okay, so that's it for the 75-plus point club. Brian, how about just for fun? You don't have to respond to them, only if you want. Uh, I am just going to tell you the players that would have joined the 70-point club if we were doing it. There's a bunch of players who broke 70 for the first time, but we had to raise the bar because so many players got into the 70-point club this year, and we don't do four-hour episodes of Keeping Carlson. Uh, so, Brian, I'm just going to give the list just for fun, and then if you want to comment on anyone, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. But here it is for your listening pleasure. Here we go. Mika Zabanajad, 
74 points. Uh, his previous high was 51 back with Ottawa. Tomas Hurdle, 74 points. His previous high was 46. Mark Giordano, the first defenseman on the list uh, to get to 70 plus for the first time. 74 points when his previous high was 56. Dylan Larkin, 73 points. Uh, his previous high was 63. He's clearly on the rise, a Debrinket type IMO. Uh, Mark Stone, 73 points uh, in 77 games. He actually paced for a lot higher. The previous season, he had 62 points in 58 games, but he had never actually gotten to 70 plus points. Uh, Austin Matthews, 73 points in only 68 games. So he is one of those guys that's for sure going to pace for more than 75 points. If he could play a full season, we're probably looking up closer to like an 85 point guy uh max domi brian the guy who was the bane of your projections all throughout the season you kept saying he'd slow down he did at times but he still ended the season with 72 points in 82 games his previous high was when he had 52 points as a rookie uh, morgan riley so another defenseman 72 points when he previously had 52 as his best which was the season before and before that he was like a, a 40 point guy so riley's been on a huge surge evgeny dadanov hit 70 this past season he had 65 the year before though he also paced for around the same john carlson 70 points uh when he had 68 the year before mike hoffman 70 points and logan couture 70 points those are the new members of the 70 point club if we want to be completist but yeah the ones we've dug into were the 75 plus guys you want to talk about any of these guys or shall we close out the show uh Larkin, Stone, Matthews, and maybe Dadanov are my bets to return to the 70, 75 point club, maybe even. John Carlson, like if I had to pick a defenseman out of the group, you mentioned him, Giordano, and Morgan Riley. Uh, I'd, he'd be the one I choose. And Evgeny Dadanov is my bubble guy, which leaves Couture, Hoffman, and Tomas Hurdle. Uh, not hitting 75, 70 points again or having a shot at 75 in my estimation. But I've been well, wrong before. Well, also you'll dig into them a little more than just off the cuff like this when we record yeah. the album. <laughs> uh, you left out Max Domi. I assume you don't like him. Oh, yeah. Like, like yeah. You hate- Max Domi is good. Like, we used to think he was going to get there. Now, like, he has that good season, and now you hate him more than ever. So that's pretty fun. Uh, Tomas Hurdle, Brian, that might be the big whiff from what you just said, but we'll dig in. We've already talked about him so much over the playoffs. So let's close things out. Let's do a couple league updates before we end the show. We had our keeping Carlson patron playoff pool. Uh, and Brian, guess what? I'm not going to win. I'm in second place. Unfortunately, uh, I picked a bunch of Bruins, but Jaja's team called Elon is a hoser. They're running away with it. They're going to win. So Jaja, I'm going to be sending you uh, these random playoff, uh, random hockey books from my mom since I posted in the patron Facebook group, the books. I'll, I guess I'll send you one of them. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss. Once you've lo- got the win officially, we'll discuss how I can get you that book. Then we also had a couple winners playoff pool and freaking Dave Benton, the guy who won the whole thing and is the couple ultimate champion tier one champ also is destroying the couple winners playoff pool. Uh, we did it in a way where in round two, Jordan won, but then we redrafted for the final two rounds and Dave drafted like all Bruins and blues. And so he's like ruling the day. Everyone else is long gone. Uh, then Brian, one other pool I wanted to bring up, Brian, remember on the patron cast when we did a draft of playoff teams, we did an auction draft where we each drafted playoff teams and then whoever ended up with the winning team was going to win. Remember that? Yes. Yeah. I guess you, you're a little Vividly. Sad. Yeah, because you bid 19 of your $30 budget to get the Tampa Bay Lightning, who were out oh so fast. Uh, currently, I 
am still in it because I have the Boston Bruins, who I spent $5 of my budget on. And Dave is still in it because he has the St. Louis Blues, who he spent $4 of his budget on. So who would have predicted it? But it's between me and Dave. So Dave Benton might pull off a three-peat. He might get the trio of pool wins of the couple. The trifecta. The trifecta. That's what I should say. But right now, the Bruins are looking pretty good. So I'm feeling good about that one. Uh, There's also a pool that patron Ben set up, a survivor-style playoff pool. And Jade and Victor are neck and neck right now. So I just wanted to give them a shout out. But okay, Brian, with that, I guess uh, let's end the show. So follow us on Twitter at Keeping Carlson. Uh, if you want to pre-order the Almanac, keepingcarlson.com slash Almanac. If you want to become a patron, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. You got a lot of fun perks there. You can go to the website, check them out. And if you just give us any amount of money, we'll give you access to all of our perks. So we'd love to have you on board. But if you want to wait till the season starts, I, I don't really care. Like, whatever. We'd love to have you. When the season starts, being a patron is really, really fun. For now, it's pretty fun, I would say. And we're actually going to be doing a patron cast probably next weekend. So we'll be posting soon, asking for the patrons' questions, and we'll answer every single one of them. That's what we do every single month for the patrons. But with that, Brian, let's cue the outro music. And why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson podcast was presented by Dabra Hockey and powered by our patrons, including our newest ones, Corey W., Maddie B., Matthew C., and John N., Thanks for joining us for the off-season. This episode was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, Natural Statric, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, Charting Hockey, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, and Yahoo. Actually, not Yahoo. Not this week. Okay, well, whatever. I'm sure you didn't use all of them this week. I did. I always keep it very faithful. I'm very faithful. Man, so hard on Yahoo. Just don't say it. It's like worse that you say them and then be like, actually, no, not Yahoo. (laughs) But anyway, thanks a lot for that, Brian. And thanks for all this research and to all the uh, new members of the 75 Plus Point Club. Looking forward to doing another episode with you in a couple of weeks. I guess our next episode will be like our last kind of boring episode where not much has happened. And then the following one, we're already going to be at the draft and like free agency and trades. And it's going to start getting really crazy. Yeah, can't wait. Uh, But until then... Why don't you just uh, keep on keeping Carl signed?